the church did not believe that the earth was flat. Nobody thought the earth was flat. Columbus was not told, don't say, oh, you know, you'll fall off the edge by bishops. That's completely fictitious. Calvin did not say, who are you going to believe, Copernicus or the Holy Ghost? It's a fabricated quote. Did you know, here's the story, did you know two guys wrote some incredibly popular books 150 years ago with all these stories in them, and they were wrong. The stories were made up, but they took over, and now they're in your textbooks. This is the most successful conspiracy theory of all time. And yet now, historians of science know it's not true. Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Welcome to another episode of Christ and Culture. I'm Ken Keithley. And I'm Nathaniel Williams, the editor and content manager here at the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture. We've got a great episode lined up for you today, but before we jump into that, we have another edition of Ask the Profs. And Dr. Keithley, this question is one that actually your students ask you very often, and I think it's a, uh, it's a good question that probably some of our listeners are asking themselves as well. And here's the question. If Jesus didn't have a sin nature, how is it that he was tempted just as I am? This is a great question, and one of the things that I think that we need to make sure that we understand correctly is that I don't really think Christians have two natures, you know, that we have a fallen nature and a saved uh, nature. I think that that doesn't quite—it's not a very healthy anthropology. There's only one human nature, and we have experienced a fall— and we are experiencing Christ's redemption as, as we have been born again by the Spirit of God. It is true that Christ never sinned. And, and we can have a great question, was it even possible for him, could he have sinned, since he was God manifest in the flesh? Part of the problem with that is, is that we think that he's almost like a cyborg Jesus. That is, divine on the inside, human on the outside. Uh, in, or maybe even a, a Clark Kent Jesus. You know, remember Superman, how he, he would pretend to be mild-mannered Clark Kent. Clark Kent only pretended to be weak. He only pretended to be afraid. He only pretended that he was at risk. Whenever, the truth of the matter, he was none of those things because he was Superman. That's not the way the Bible presents the incarnation. Jesus experienced all of our limitations. And so, therefore, he had to, as an infant, I don't think that even though he is the divine Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, I don't believe that at birth he looked up at Mary and said, hello, Mom. Uh, No, the Bible teaches that he grew in wisdom and in stature. He developed as a normal boy. He had to learn how to walk. He had to learn how to talk. He had to be potty trained. He had to, all of those things that normal human boys have to learn, he had to learn. The difference was he obeyed every time that he had the opportunity to disobey. And this goes to uh, the question, did he have somehow some kind of advantage or was the temptation as real? And I would go so far as to say is not only was his temptations as real, but actually he was tempted in ways we can't even imagine. Mm. Imagine every time you took a quiz or took a test, if you accessed the memory banks, that you would have infinite knowledge. And yet 
the Bible makes it clear that Christ operated in his humanity according to the will of the Father, and he was never allowed to access his deity apart from the will of the Father. This means, you think about it, every time you played basketball, you could have made every shot. You, every, time you, you know, you, every, every time you went up to hit, uh, play baseball, going to hit a home run every time. He had the ability to do that every time if he would so cheat. You think about it. Whenever the, uh, whenever the devil tempted him and said, turn these stones into bread, you can do it. The reason that's temptation is because he could. Think about it. If every time if you wanted a hamburger, I think some, think some chicken fingers and fries would be right, yeah, nice yeah. right now. If you could just wish it into existence, just think how that would be, that type of temptation. So rather than not being tempted as much as we are, I would argue that he was tempted more than we can ever imagine, and yet he was without sin. So Jesus was not a cyborg, nor was he Superman, but yet he was something greater and different, uh, the incarnate Son of God. Thank you, Dr. Keithley, for that answer to that really difficult question. One last thing before we jump into our conversation, a reminder that our upcoming conference, Exploring Personhood, is coming up in just a few weeks. Registration starts at just $10. Virtual options are available, so reserve your tickets at cfc.scbts.edu. In certain parts of our culture, there is an assumption that science and religion are in conflict with each other. But is that really true? A new book says no to that. This book entitled Of Popes and Unicorns, Science, Christianity, and How the Conflict Thesis Fooled the World may be my favorite book title of 2021. We'll talk about that in a minute. Today, we're honored to have with us the authors of that book, Mr. David Hutchings and Dr. James C. Ungurianu, and I hope that's the last time I have to say that. We're going to just call them <laughs> David and James for the duration of our time together. Uh, David and James, uh, thank you for being with us today. I want to jump in just with the title of the book. Let me read that again. It's worth, it's worth revisiting here. Of Popes and Unicorns, Science, Christianity, and How the Conflict Thesis Fooled the World. We'll talk about the conflict thesis in a minute, but first, which one of you will tell us, how'd you come up with this title? The conflict thesis, the second part in the subtitle, in a nutshell, the conflict thesis is God versus science, you've got to pick a side, right? And so where do popes and unicorns fit into that? Well, if you think of the church, the Christian church, as being like the empire in Star Wars, then the popes are like Darth Vader, aren't they, or Darth Maul, or... They're leading the empire, um, and so they, they're the ultimate bad guys. And because of that, the people who have wanted to attack the church from a scientific point of view, they, they like to find a pope to blame. They like to find a pope to have a go at. And so we get these various stories of popes trying to excommunicate comets um, or of popes um, praying away basilisks um, and uh, of, pro of popes burning people like Galileo at the stake and these stories go around because if you can turn a pope into a bad guy um uh, an anti-science guy then you've won half the battle already and then the unicorns well you know there are people in the history of Christianity who seem to believe in unicorns so if you can point mm -hmm. that out 
uh, and say, look, here's a, here's a famous bishop, and this bishop believed in unicorns, then you've made the church look like a bunch of idiots, and uh, you've, you've struck another blow for science. So if you do read the book, you'll hear some stories of popes and of unicorns. Let's talk a little bit about the conflict thesis. Uh, a couple of names come up a lot in any of these discussions. One is Andrew Dixon White, and the other one is James uh, William Draper. Who were they? Uh, what was the what was the point? You know, what what were they trying to get at? First off, let's talk about who were those men. I can start with with Draper since he published before Andrew Dixon White. John William Draper is actually born in England. His father was a itinerant Wesleyan minister. Uh, around age 11, Draper was sent to a Methodist boarding school, presumably to follow in his father's footsteps and prepare him for the ministry. But his father seems to have had a very strong non-conformist outlook. He had a penchant for scientific subjects like chemistry and astronomy. So it's no surprise, really, that Draper's father sent him to study chemistry and medicine at University of College of London, known then as London University. His father, unfortunately, died almost as soon as Draper started his studies. But Draper, a very determined young man, completed his degree in chemistry and after that immigrated to the United States. Draper established himself as a leading scientist very quickly, becoming head of chemistry at New York University in 1837. He was known as a pioneer of photochemistry and is often thought to be the first person to take a photograph of the human face, that being his, his sister, Dorothy Catherine Draper. He was also one of the earliest to practice uh, what's called astrophotography. He was, for example, uh, one of the earliest uh, to take a photo of, of the moon. But soon Draper gave up chemistry and science for history. And of course, now he is most well known for his history of the conflict between science and religion, which was published in 1874. In it, Draper claimed that the history of science, quote, was a narrative of conflict between two contending powers, the expansive force of the human intellect on the one side and the compression arising from traditionary faith and human interests on the other. And Draper's book actually formed a, a main source, main inspiration for Andrew Dixon White's own narrative. So Andrew Dixon White, tell us, uh, David, about him. He's a genuine American born in the USA. He was a historian politician. His parents wanted him to study for the ministry he really, really didn't want to do that, uh, to the point where he actually bunked out of school without them knowing. Uh, and eventually they got so fed up with him that they decided to let him do what he wanted to do. Parents, that's not always what you should do. I'm just, they didn't necessarily do the right thing, but they let him do what he wanted to do, which was to go to Yale and study literature, English, and, and he was a huge success. Quite early on in his time at, uh, at Yale, he won an essay prize, um, which at the time was. Uh, had the highest monetary value of any prize at any university in the world. Mm. So it started to pay off quite early for him. He wanted to stay in that area. He loved university and everything about it. He wanted to be a lecturer. He met Ezra Cornell. And between the two of them, they were the founders of uh, Cornell University. He was a lecturer there in all sorts of different subjects, anything that took his fancy. Um, he particularly loved talking about um, the interplay of history, theology, philosophy. Um, he was a meticulous chap, collected uh, tens of thousands of manuscripts and books, 
in his own personal collection, which he later donated to Cornell Library. Uh, he was made a senator at one point, we think largely against his will, and he was also brought in as a diplomat during the Civil War to try and persuade the British not to get too involved. And um, so he was well known as being a brilliantly clever, very persuasive and gifted communicator, both in, in his writing and in his public speaking. So would he be like someone like Christopher Hitchens uh, was, uh, someone who is known, uh, as you said, someone who's known for his uh, ability to, to communicate in a provocative and interesting way? It, would that be an analogy or would there be a better one? Well, Hitchens is an avowed atheist, right, or was an avowed atheist. This was not the case for White. White thought that what he was doing was promoting a kind of new and improved version of Christianity. So he would have seen himself, uh, in fact, he did call himself a follower of Christ, but he didn't have the same Christ in mind as the church would. Tell us about the books that they published. What was the gist of it? What were their arguments? Scholars typically look at Draper as his narrative as anti-Catholic. He was attacking the Roman Catholic Church, so he took certain episodes in the history of the interactions with new knowledge or the advance of science and was deliberately accusing the Roman Catholic Church of oppressing, suppressing the advancement of knowledge. But Draper also attacked uh, Protestants, too, and this is one of the reasons why we, we decided to, to write this book is because Historians of science typically have that position when it comes to Draper and a, and a slightly more nuanced position when it comes to White. But looking more closely, we're arguing that Draper and White actually had a more nuanced perspective on the relationship between science and religion. Draper actually advocated a return to a pure, more rational form of Christianity. In his early lectures on chemistry to students, for example, he sounds rather like a natural theologian. Draper spoke of the laws of nature as designed and set in place by an almighty God, a creator, the great architect, he says. This more rational or reasonable Christianity comes from folks like Francis Bacon and the early members of the Royal Society of London. Later, you see the English deists advocated for the same position. In addition to folks like John Locke and Isaac Newton, all of them looked back to the Protestant Reformation as a reformation not only of religion, but science or, or natural philosophy. Draper also seemed to depend on historians like Edward Gibbon and his history of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, but he also mentions the work of German Lutheran church historians like Johann von Mosham or English clergyman Kanye Middleton, William Walburton, John Dorton. Well, we, so looking at the entire corpus of Draper's writings, we, we wanted to put it into context. For example, it's often mentioned in scholarly literature, uh, but left unanalyzed, that Draper's history of the conflict was largely a condensed version of his previously published work. And most importantly, Draper had published his History of the Intellectual Development of Europe in 1863, about a decade earlier. And here he made a, a crucial distinction that most historians of science have forgotten or, or simply ignored. So Draper discussing the so-called paganization of, of Christianity under Emperor Constantine. 
Uh, and when he's talking about this paganization, he distinguished between Christianity and ecclesiastical institutions. The former, he wrote, is a gift of God, meaning that Christianity is a gift of God. And the latter, ecclesiastical institutions, are the product of, of, of human invention and, and therefore, he writes, open to criticism or condemnation. He argued that the paganization of Christianity had resulted, quote, in the tyranny of theology over thought and declared that those who had known what religion was in the apostolic days might look with boundless surprise on now what's been engrafted upon it and passing under its name, end quote. But even his notorious history of conflict under closer inspection continues to make these distinctions. He, he argued, for instance, that he would only consider what he called the orthodox or extremist views and not the moderate ones. He expressed concern that traditionary faith was leading the intelligent classes to give up on religion entirely. So his narrative, in short, was intended to show that the decline of religious faith was a direct consequence of what he thought was a politicized or materialized Christianity and not science. So two, two crucial points here I want to I emphasize is that Draper's understanding of history is mostly taken from Protestant historians. Uh, and second, these Protestant historians predate the 19th century. So if we're looking for the origins of the conflict thesis in the 19th century, you're already too late. Now, our, our understanding of conflict actually predates this whole abstract understanding of science and religion. Um, so clearly Draper, like White, was no atheist. He looked back to kind of a rational religion found among 17th and 18th century dissident intellectuals who viewed the new knowledge as evidence of the creative power of God. So if I hear you correctly, uh, to look upon Draper and White, and from Draper, he sounds like he was a nonconformist, uh, basically, whereas White yeah. may have been more of a an Enlightenment-influenced person, if I'm hearing correctly, and David can uh, correct me if I'm getting that wrong. But what I hear from both of you is that uh, Draper and White were not Carl Sagan, uh, and and they, they may not even have been like the classic Enlightenment skeptics, someone like Gibbons or, or Voltaire. Uh, and so, so the very idea that they were on a rampage to overthrow uh, the Christian faith is a caricature even of them. Yeah, so they, they lived in an era where you can get an awful lot out of the titles of the books that people wrote. So, you know, our title of Popes and Unicorns. So clickbait is nothing new. No, that's exactly right. What John William Draper did is uh, he called his book A History of the Conflict Between Religion and Science, right? And then Andrew Dixon White's book is called A History of the Warfare of Science with Theology in Christendom. So they've clearly both written books that lay out this grand thesis of, you know what, it, the church has always attacked science and the science, science, good science always undermines the church. And that this has happened throughout the history of the church. That's, that's the essential message. And in those books, they tell stories like, the church all thought that the earth was flat until Columbus sailed round it and proved that it was round. Or they say, you know, Galileo was a, a, a brave scientist who dared to defy the church and the church burned him at the stake or, or they, they massively exaggerate the stories or Bruno was burned because he was a brave scientist or the church 
banned autopsies or banned dissections and so on. And that and these books were bestsellers. They were they were huge. They were the coffee table books of of the time. Um, Draper's book was translated into over twenty languages, I think, um, and uh, they went through multiple editions. Everybody would have known about these books. They were hugely influential. And then they were picked up by the universities when there were first departments for the history of science. They picked these books up as their course books, right? So then you have generation after generation being taught that the, the relationship between the church and science is one of enmity. Um, but what was really going on was, to sort of summarise what, what James was saying, um, so Draper is convinced that there was some form of early and pure Christianity that came from Christ, and that that teaching was then corrupted, and it was corrupted fairly early on, and that it had a load of myth grafted into it. And so he, Draper would reject miracles, and he'd reject um, all these other things as being corruptions of the original Christianity. And he was able to see through that and say, look, if we keep telling people about miracles, people aren't going to listen. Rational, intelligent people aren't going to listen. So we need to ditch all of that stuff. Um, and we need to get back to this pure moral teaching of Jesus the, before it got ruined by the church. Whereas White, he goes the other way and he says, no, no, no. What happens is um, in every era, there's like an important teacher or an important movement. And they move us a little bit closer to the truth. So he would have followed the idea that, say, the Old Testament is like an elementary primer. Right. And then Jesus comes along and now you're getting your your secondary education. Um, and and so we should pick up on these useful pieces of information and, and good teaching to progress us to the next stage of humanity. Um, and so Draper's saying, look backwards to find the truth to an uncorrupted Christianity. And White is saying we need to look forwards. But where they unite is that they say, well, um, in order to get you to ditch the Christianity we want you to ditch, we're going to use science as our, our weaponry. Um, and we can say that science has undermined traditional Christian faith as you have been taught it. So they agree on the angle between church and science. And that's what made their books such an important and powerful weapon. They saw they were interlocking texts. Um, and even though they were written for different reasons, they ended up working together um, and uh, causing an awful lot of uh, damage, really, to, to the Christian church. So for the busy pastor, our staff member listening to this podcast, what's the takeaway for, the, for them? How, how would what your, uh, your research has found and your work has done, in what ways would it help them uh, in communicating and talking to their congregation about the right way to approach faith and science and, and what the history of this whole interaction has been? What would be your advice to them? But yeah, I, I think science and Christianity need not be in conflict, right? There are many, many examples where they are working together. But I think it also shows that it can be a fine line, a, a dance on the, a razor's edge, so to speak. As a historian, I, I look to history for models to follow, and I'm often encouraged by the early natural philosophers who pursued sort of a unity of knowledge that covered all subjects. Today, the pursuit of science is almost the same thing as the pursuit of technology. And this is kind of a very utilitarian notion of truth. But for the natural philosophers, for the early natural philosophers, the study of nature consisted of the study of God's creation. 
the term natural philosophy, meaning the love of wisdom of the natural world, closely resembles our understanding of natural science, but with the important distinction that investigating nature was equated to investigating God's creation. Medieval Christians tried to learn about God by examining his work. In the early modern period, natural philosophy was extensively used to supply arguments for the existence of God. So in short, for the natural philosopher, the study of nature always had God in mind. And this is kind of the famous observation made by historian Andrew Cunningham. Natural philosophy was essentially about God and God's creation. Thus, people doing natural philosophy at some level or another are always talking about God. So in, in this sense, it makes little sense to talk about science and religion in that context, right? There are no two things, the relationship between which can be examined. There's simply one integrated enterprise. But once theologians and scientists and philosophers started distinguishing between two truths or two spheres or two books, that's when things started getting problematic. That's when they started competing against each other. So this, this historical understanding of how nature was sort of separated from God's creation, I think, will help us, those in the church, but also those Christians who are practicing scientists, will help us envision a more holistic view of God's creation that nurtures things like wonder and wisdom and, and worship without divorcing the fact fact from meaning and, and truth from, from value. As a historian, I often look at these historical figures of the past to help me with the way I practice uh, understanding uh, the world today. David, how would you answer that? The notion of a busy pastor asking you, what's the takeaway from your research? Yeah, well, I can answer that as someone who is a busy pastor, um, because I'm a I'm a high school science teacher, but I'm also uh, an elder, uh, one of two elders at my local church in York. Um, and so I am interested in how this plays out in, in you know, at the coalface. So what do we do? Well, first of all, we've got to recognise that the reason it's a problem is that God versus science has become a story that is very easy to latch onto, right? And people have ways of, of tying that story together. So they say, oh, well, the scientists tell me this and the bible tells me that or they might think um yeah well i was told at school that galileo um you know was persecuted by the church so they have these like little data points that they can tie together and say it's god versus science and uprooting a story is very difficult because stories are kind of fundamental they they're easy to understand and they sit at a base level and what's not going to happen is you are not going to uproot the story in somebody's life by telling them a bunch of facts. Our brains just can't cope like that. You have to tell them a different story. Um, that's how you uproot a story. And that's why we've written this book. It's a book of stories. Um, and so it might be a cheeky answer, but one of the things that someone can do, honestly, is read this book. It's a book of stories. It's not a, although it's got scholarly wisdom from James, it's not a scholarly book, right? Um, but here are some simple ones. The church did not ban dissection. The church legalized dissection. Okay, there's, there's a simple one. The church did not believe that the earth was flat. Nobody thought the earth was flat. Columbus was not told, don't say, oh, you know, you'll fall off the edge by bishops. That's completely fictitious. Calvin did not say, who are you going to believe, Copernicus or the Holy Ghost? It's a fabricated quote. 
Did you know, here's the story, did you know two guys wrote some incredibly popular books 150 years ago with all these stories in them, and they were wrong. The stories were made up, but they took over, and now they're in your textbooks. This is the most successful conspiracy theory of all time. And yet now, historians of science know it's not true. Um, and you'll be armed with some of these stories. And then also, uh, what else can you say? You can say, if God and science were really opposed, you simply could not have people who were high ranking in the sciences who were also Christians. It would be an impossibility if they were opposed. Um, and yet we see it all the time. You go to the top of any scientific field anywhere in the world, you'll find active Bible believing, practicing Christians involved. Um, and if you want to know more about how it was that Christianity actually led to the scientific revolution, then um, that's pretty easy to look up to. If you believe in one God who's in control of the whole universe and who is faithful and good, and if you believe that he made your mind, then you believe that you're going to be able to study his universe and find out things about it. And that's why the science that we do is Christian science. David, that's fantastic. Thank you for sharing that, especially for just thoughtful lay people or for pastors who, uh, who really do want to kind of dispel some of the conspiratorial nature of uh, these myths and stories. It's extremely helpful. So uh, we've had with us today Mr. David Hutchings and Dr. James uh, Unguriano. Again, I think I said that properly, who, by the way, you'll just have to take my word for it, but looks strikingly similar to Aaron Rodgers, the quarterback of the Green Bay Packers. I don't know, James, has anyone ever told you that? You look a lot like Aaron Rodgers. Not yet. This is the first time, but I, I take it as a compliment. Thank you, Ben. Yeah, no, no problem. Uh, thank you guys for being with us. Again, the title of their book, Of Popes and Unicorns, Science, Christianity, and How the Conflict Thesis Fooled the World. Guys, thank you for your work, and thanks for joining us today. Southeastern Seminary's mission is to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. Almost all of Southeastern's degrees are available fully online, so whether you're in your living room or the classroom, you can receive high-quality theological education. Get equipped wherever you are today for wherever you're called in the future by visiting sebts.edu. Conversations about deconstruction and ex-evangelicals have increased in recent years. As we conclude today's episode, Jordan Stefaniak discusses his own antidote to deconstruction. Utter the word deconstruction in any evangelical milieu and you're bound to encounter a myriad of reactions. Most of them are going to be incredibly visceral and opinionated. And many of those will come from ex-evangelicals who are ready to praise the glories of this deconstruction. But what do I mean by deconstruction? I don't mean what Derrida meant. And if you don't know what he meant, that's fine too. Because what I do mean is deconstruction as a practice of re-examining previous beliefs and ultimately rejecting them. And by ex-evangelical, I mean those who have deconstructed from their previous evangelical beliefs. 
As the topic of deconstruction becomes more and more prevalent, so are the number of those identifying as exvangelicals. Consider the wildly popular exvangelical musings of John Piper's son, Abraham Piper, or the former pastor and former evangelical mega-author Joshua Harris. Both have now built entire platforms on deconstruction. Sometimes it's hard to remember a week wherein a prominent former evangelical isn't renouncing their faith and advocating deconstruction as some sort of pseudo-gospel. Such prominent departures aren't more troublesome in the eyes of God than any other, but the publicity many of them garner has the ability to cause serious doubt among those who remain committed to the faith, leading to anxious thoughts of deconstruction among many church members. Now, my aim in noting this trend is not to provide a counter-argument. It is not to provide a one-size-fits-all solution as if there was a problem that needs or could be fixed. My goal is rather encouragement. Now, that may sound odd if you're a Christian. How could this phenomenon be encouraging? Well, rather than offering a polemic on why such deconstruction ultimately lacks intellectual sustainability, which I think it does, I want to offer my own personal story one of near deconstruction in hindsight. I offer it not because it's special or unique, it's actually neither, but my story might be encouraging because it's ordinary and highlights God's ordinary sustaining graces. I've always liked to think, but I wasn't always aware of the greater intellectual world. After all, I grew up deeply enmeshed in the church. My dad was a pastor for several of them from traditional Southern Baptist churches to seeker-sensitive megachurches. And throughout my teen years, I never questioned my faith. It was the air I breathed. Despite witnessing slander, gossip, evil, and untold sins against my father and others within the church, including myself, I never questioned the veracity of my faith or the trustworthiness of the scriptures or the church. Then I went to college. I didn't go to a state school, but an extraordinarily conservative, even fundamentalist Christian university. No doctrine of deconstruction was taught there. One would expect my faith to remain unchallenged, coddling my conception of the world. Several years in, nothing overtly sinister challenged my faith, but its self-examination did. I first noticed the shallowness of my own local church, which lacked any sense of robust engagement with scripture. Not soon after, I noticed the superficiality of evangelicalism at large. It appeared to be completely void of intellectual substance. This finding can mark the beginning of a person's journey to deconstruction. But God, in his grace, provided a mentor who was a professor at the university. We would meet weekly for at least three hours and wrestle with every possible meaning and implication of the Greek New Testament. Nothing was off limits. There was always something more to learn. He never had an answer for every question I had, but that didn't matter. I was free to question, to wrestle, to think. It wasn't just the opportunity to study Greek that made the difference. It was having someone devoted to deep reflection on Christian scripture and its theological implications for all of life. I had someone committed to serious thinking. Now, looking back on these formative years, I am now certain I would have abandoned the church had I not been guided into the intellectual bulwark of the church. Had I not been given a mentor who provided an alternative way of thinking about the faith in the church, I would have walked away to pursue more intellectually satisfying and consistent paths to wholeness. Had I not been guided into the vast, deep, and rich intellectual tradition of Christianity, I would have been another ex-evangelical. Now I realize the reasons for deconstructing a religion. Sometimes it's a lack of transparency, other times it's the presence of abuse, but many times people abandon the faith over the church's perceived failure to be intellectually deep and stimulating. 
For me, this would have been the straw that broke the camel's back. I had found the evangelical church utterly shallow. Was this all there was to Christianity? Was it all just pop music, self-help talks, and overnight video game extravaganzas? I could find all these things outside the church. In many ways, I identify with people like Abraham Piper who find the evangelical subculture utterly bizarre and intellectually barren. But I came to find that what I experienced in the American evangelical church was not universal, either today or in the past. It wasn't always this way, and it doesn't have to be this way. There is another, better way. God in his providence has guided the church since the beginning and gifted it with some of the world's greatest and most penetrating thinkers. Anyone serious about thinking will be forced to engage with Christians throughout the ages, from Augustine to Anselm to Thomas Aquinas to Jonathan Edwards. Christian intellectual giants permeate the past and the present. Even more, the biblical authors themselves, from Moses to Peter to Paul, model thinking of the highest degree. None of them offered a superficial Christianity devoid of serious thinking. For me, God's means of keeping me in the faith has been the depth and the breadth of the Christian tradition. While I have become jaded and appalled in some ways, God has been faithful to provide an alternative in the great tradition. Now, our tradition isn't devoid of faults, but it's committed to deep reflection. So the antidote to deconstruction for me has been to dig deeper into the churches and institutions that value the Spirit's work throughout the ages. While I heartily endorse engaging ideas and seriously assessing them on their own terms as a committed seeker of the truth, I am convinced that the only way to most fully do this is within the Christian tradition itself. And I genuinely think that most people who ultimately deconstruct for reasons of intellectual substance are either unaware of the riches of the Christian tradition or don't truly and fully and seriously engage and assess the intellectual bastions within. Jordan Stefaniak is a PhD student in philosophy at the University of Birmingham in the UK. He is the co-founder of the London Lyceum a weekly podcast and online center for analytic, Baptist, and confessional theology. He works full-time in the finance industry, and he's a doctoral research fellow here at the Center for Faith and Culture. Thanks for listening today. If you enjoyed this episode, do us a huge favor by giving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We'll see you next week. 